Welcome back to the Taproot Podcast, where we dig beneath the surface of a scientific publication to tell the stories behind the science. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. Today, we talk with a graduate student about making hard career choices in difficult situations. Please be warned that some of the content may be difficult to hear for anyone sensitive to stories of sudden death. The backstory here is that Laura's PhD advisor suddenly died, leaving her to navigate grad school while dealing with confusion, grief, and the unknown. Laura has an amazingly thoughtful reflection on all the decisions and factors that she had to consider, and we are so, so grateful that she was willing to talk with us. And with that, let's get on with the episode. Today's guest is Laura Classic, a graduate student in Steve Thegg's lab at UC Davis. Laura is originally from St. Louis. She did her bachelor's degree at Hendricks College before heading to the plant biology program at Davis. Laura is an ASPB Convirons scholar, and she serves on the Plant Biology Graduate Student Association. Welcome to the taproot, Laura. Hi, it's great to be here. So, so we usually ask people about one of their papers, but you are our first graduate student guest. Uh-huh. And as we've talked about, uh, uh, the, there are unreasonable expectations for a grad student to already have a paper. So that would be very untrap of us to ask you to tell you about your paper. So instead, we wanted to, to give people context about sort of what you do. Can you tell us about the research in your lab and what your particular project is? Yeah. Of course. And so in Steve's lab at Davis, we're really interested in how proteins go across membranes. And in my project more specifically, I'm really interested in how thylakoid membranes develop. And that's a complicated process that requires that lipids and pigments and proteins all be synthesized and delivered to one location and assembled in a highly coordinated and really complex process. And I try and understand how proteins are delivered, in particular, the integral membrane proteins in the thylakoid, because most of the chloroplast proteins are encoded in the nucleus, which means they're gonna be translated in the cytosol. And then these highly hydrophobic membrane proteins are going to have to be imported into the chloroplast across its two envelopes, and then go across another aqueous compartment in the chloroplast stroma before being inserted into the thylakoid. And I try and understand through the lens of one particular uh, protein in the chloroplast called PLSP1, how that transit across the stroma works, how chaperones are involved in assisting that process or maybe clearing out proteins that have become damaged along the way. I tend to teach this whole chloroplast import problem like a cartoon, right? There's a There's a little square at the beginning of the protein sequence that encodes transport into the chloroplast, and then there's another little square that encodes transport into the thylakoids, and then there's like a little line that's the rest of the protein sequence, but like that's totally a cartoon version, and it doesn't take into account any of the stuff you just talked about, which is there are these hydrophobic domains, and like like where are the chaperonins, and how are they working, and the whole thing is really interesting. To explain it to like my family who don't have a scientific background, I tend to make them think about the postal service because I'm like, okay, 
you don't just put an address on the envelope, then it has to go through all sorts of different boxes and you hope that your envelope doesn't get beat up and all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> and you have to have, mul- it's like multiple zip codes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots and lots of zip codes. And so you're you're doing a lot of sort of biochemistry to, to understand these processes? Mm-hmm. Yes, lots of in vitro organelle targeting assays. Radio- Do you have to like radioactively label your protein? Yeah. So you can use, for some proteins, you can use like proteins that have been overexpressed in E. coli, but often we will use the in vitro synthesized and radio labeled proteins just because the radio labeling has such, it's very sensitive. So, mm-hmm. and these processes don't necessarily work super well in the isolated organelles. And if you're interested in studying one particular protein that's not necessarily very well behaved, like the protein I study, the more sensitive assays, just the best. So yeah, we still radio label things. Old school. Very old school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Radioactivity is always fun. Uh, it's, it's amazing how little <laughs> we do of it these days. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, like when I started grad school, everyone, you know, everyone learned how to deal with radioactivity because you just needed it for so many different assays and it's really gone away for, um, for many, 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 techniques but there are still things that it just can't you can't give it up for nope yeah we're not even qualified to use it in my lab i've never been certified here no it was it was very alarming when i was a you know brand new grad student they're like oh yeah we work with radioactivity it's like really that was not i was not anticipating this and it was like and like it's fine we survey everything there's geiger counters just don't do anything stupid <laughs> Well, so, you know, I think your research is, uh, the way you described it actually sounds like it, it fits in really well with what Steve Thag works about. But I realized that I wasn't sort of expecting that because you're not actually, you didn't actually start in grad school in in Steve's lab. You actually started in Kentaro Inoue's lab and transferred into Steve's lab because Kentaro tragically died right in the middle of your of your graduate work and you came to our attention because you you wrote this amazing essay on plantae about this whole process and we're going to link to that in the show notes and you you talk in that essay about sort of the not sort of but the actual trauma of finding out and how that happened and we don't really want to talk about that it was really nicely written but what we want to talk to you about is everything that sort of followed in terms of your grad career and how you had to make decisions in an environment where you had not expected to have to make a huge career decision and you didn't have a ton of time. And so I guess I, I'll start off with where were you in your grad process when this happened? You had, you had started it and, at, at Davis and joined a lab, but, uh, but where, where were you in the actual like, mechanics of getting through your PhD? Yeah, so I was right at the beginning of my third year. And what actually might be more descriptive is I was exactly 13 days before my qualifying exam when all this happened. So did you, did you actually have your defense, thirteen your, your, your exam 13 days later? I did actually have the exam 13 oh, days wow. later, yeah. Was that your choice or were you hoping, I mean, it seems like would, they would have delayed it. It was... In part, my it it was ultimately at the end my call. They weren't going to they they would never have asked me to do it if I thought that I absolutely couldn't do it. But we were 
like I was I was so close to the exam that I was basically ready for the exam and there was because I wasn't I hadn't taken that and I wasn't a PhD candidate there was some administrative sort of I don't know someone called it magical powers that I didn't have we thought it would be easier if I did actually get that out of the way when I was ready for it and then so that we could just make me a PhD candidate and assuming I passed the exam um, and that life would be somehow easier no. but it was it was tricky to do because I had to ignore everything else that was happening at the time and pretend that I was going to carry out this project exactly as it had been laid out the day before Kantara died in the exam two weeks later. That's some serious compartmentalization you're asking yourself to do there. Yeah. In hindsight, I would maybe have not made myself compartmentalize that much. I might've asked to delay it, but it's hard to make that call, you know, when everything is happening and to realize that that's going to be a lot to ask of yourself. Yeah. I think that's sort of one of the themes that came out of your essay for me was this feeling that you're making these decisions in like almost the worst environment possible. Not, I'm not criticizing anybody, but I mean, everybody is upset and traumatized. Nobody knows what the right thing to do. Everybody's trying to make decisions really fast. And it's, it felt like that was sort of, that was like your life for a couple of months was just making tons of decisions in this like weird in-between space. Yeah, that's, it was a very strange period because my lab mates and I were trying to do things like, okay, for example, we have already talked about the radioactivity and we had to get, we had to make sure that someone, like there was actually a PI on the, you're allowed to use radioactive material so that my lab mates who were doing experiments could do experiments. And so we were figuring out stuff like that. We were trying to decide, you know, what we were going to do with the rest of our with the rest of our PhDs, I was trying to take my qualifying exam. And then, you know, even after we had made some of the decisions, and we were starting to progress again, it was like, okay, who signs this form? And just what do we do now? There was there was a lot of ambiguity, and a lot of problem solving, that started to blur together in my memory into just this massive stress and confusion yeah well i mean you you never you know that's one of those things you don't lay down memories as well when you're this when you're that stressed Mm -hmm. right i mean i think and and it's it's one of those things when everyone is stressed and everyone wants to try to help i think you want to do something that can also just amp up the stress because you can't do anything until decisions are made (laughs) <laughs> so the mm-hmm. idea that you can yeah. just oh well let's sit back a little bit but some of the like you have to make some or people feel like you have to make some decisions so i mean obviously the biggest decision you you have this immediate big decision tree that you have to make in terms of what to do next and you you talked about this a little in your essay of like should you stay in grad school should you stay at this graduate school should you should you switch labs and switch projects? And I mean, I, I so when I was in grad school, my advisor decided to move the lab literally across the country. And so we had we had a, a similar sort of decision tree to make, although with 
way less stress and trauma. Like, <laughs> so I, I don't want to like make a direct comparison. Yeah, but that that's that's still a lot. Of oh stress. yeah, it, yeah. Um, and and you know, if you have a, I had a partner at the time, and so it was it was a question of you know, was I, what decision was I going to make? But more importantly, what decision were we going to make that we had to 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 negotiate? So how did you you, you were you able to? actually think through those options? Do you feel like you did think through those options or did you just kind of go with it? Well, the different options when I wrote about them two, three years later, they're a lot more clearly laid out <laughs> than I conceived of them at the time because I've had a lot of time to think about them since that's happened. Thinking back, it was a very chaotic period. It was a very, it was especially a very chaotic first couple of days. Um, and so about the day after Kintaro died, we met with our program chair, who at the time was Nalima Sinha, and some Davis-specific context to make a little bit of what I'm going to say make more sense. Davis's grad programs go across departmental lines, and then PIs are housed within departments. So we were within the Department of Plant Sciences at Davis, and that was where the grant that was funding my project and my lab mates project, and where the fellowships that were supporting all of us were coming from. And then we were also part of this massive cross-departmental grad program. And that was, so we talked to the chair of our grad program who had been talking to the department and like, and told us that they were going to continue as best they could funding our fellowships and try to hang on to the grant. So the first piece of information we had was we're going to try and make sure there's money for you to continue your grad research. And then over the next couple of days, we started getting more information about like that. I mean, Steve came over and talked to a couple of us and said that plant sciences had asked if he would be willing to take all three of us on. That was not really what Steve had expected when he'd walked over to plant sciences that day <laughs> at all. They, he, he went to ask, I think if I remember correctly about like the memorial service and they, the in plant sciences was like, do you want three grad students? <laughs> and they had not asked That's, you about that. Yeah. No, so that was, and yeah, they didn't talk to us about that before they asked Steve. I think they were trying to make the process as painless as possible for us because they, they wanted to have a solution in place for us as fast as possible that would have as has little disruption as possible. But that also meant that they started doing things like asking advisors if they would take us on without talking to us. So chaotic. And sort of by the end of the first week after Kintaro died, we had actually all sat down. And by we, that's the people in plant sciences, Steve, and then my lab mates and I, and discussed whether or not this would be possible. And that was the point at which I had to sort of start thinking through this decision tree of, okay, is it actually possible for me to continue my project at all? Like, can I do this without Kentaro? Because he was intimately involved in the design of every experiment. He was the one who had the sort of overarching vision of where the lab was going. I'm sure there were things about my project as we had designed it that he was like, well, we'll see if we'll, we'll let Laura do this this way and she'll learn a lot from making these mistakes. And then we'll redirect over here to the way it will probably ultimately work. <laughs> and then uh, trying to, so I was concerned about that. So did you ever think I should leave? Leave completely? No. I know it came up probably when I was talking to my family. And it would have been in a lot of ways the easiest and most straightforward option for what to do 
afterwards, like leave entirely or just say, okay, I need to go to a, I need to find a different grad program that, but leaving would have meant putting down the project I'd invested two years of my life into and leaving very much and putting down that project very much felt like saying to Kentaro that the faith that he'd had in me in saying, yeah, join my lab, do this project was somehow misplaced. And that thought process Mm -hmm. was actually completely irrational, but you can't help but think that way, you know, when someone that you've trusted and worked with so much has died. Wow. I mean, on the one hand, I totally, I can see that emotion and yet as I step back and I'm like, you, you can't <laughs> live, live your life uh, yep. on, you know, what, you know, even you shouldn't be living your life on what's better for other alive people, let alone people who have passed away, um, right? Yeah. And as a motivation, that did not last very long. Like a couple of months later, I was like, wow, this, this doesn't make sense at all. Right. Okay. We need to find a different motivation going forward <laughs> because this one is not sustainable. Um, yeah. But so were options presented to you or was it like, okay, we know you're going to want to keep doing these projects and we've, we've cleared this path for that to happen, for that to happen, you got to pass your quals and then you got to move over into Steve's lab. And that's the, this is how your program, your graduate program has planned things out. Or did they, or was it more like this is, we've made this possible if you want to do it. There are these other ways you could go. Kind of a hybrid of those two, because they're like, all right, we've we've made this available. This is the pathway. We think this will work best. If that's not what you want to do, we will figure out a way to support what you right. want to do, or we'll try our best. But in terms of finding other options, I that see. was left to me to sort of go. Hey, does any do any professors have funding for a grad student at this juncture? Not really. Okay. Uh, are there other options for what I do at this point? I, I mean, I guess I'm when it's put to you like that, they're not telling you you have to go this way, but it's certainly it's like you're in this really woody forest and someone has taken a chainsaw across a path and said, you can go down this way. Or if you want to pick another way with all these, you know, like in the... <laughs> or yeah, with all these like, look at these brambles. Yes. I think you can go through them if you want to. Have at it. Yeah. We're going to yeah. take the chainsaw over yeah. here. Right. So what what have you learned yeah. about making decisions in these like really disruptive, stressful, traumatic situations? What advice would you give to somebody else? Well, the decisions you make under stress are never, like they're never optimal. So I guess one of the things, if I have learned anything from this entire process, making a decision in stress is like, you're going to, like, it's not going to be as well considered. You're not going to be able to, take emotion entirely out of it. But when I was a first year grad student, the senior, I think he was a postdoc at that point in our lab, told me that one of the things I was going to have to learn was to not panic in the middle of an experiment when things started going wrong. Because generally you could, like, if you don't panic and you stay calm, you can kind of think through a way to MacGyver your way to keeping the, finishing at least something of what you were trying to do. And then also at the same time, the other thing he said I need, would need to learn was the point at which the experiment was really not recoverable and I needed to stop entirely and go back. That's a great analogy. Yeah, sort of just made it up. <laughs> I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, yeah, I can picture all those all those times when you're like, oh, shit, I didn't make enough of this buffer or, oh, 
crap, I just dropped half of it. What can I, how can I salvage the situation or should I? And that like, how can I salvage it or should I? And I guess, especially if you're working with radioactivity, sort of heightens the level yeah, the, of anxiety there. Yeah, drop a bunch of things. It can be a kind of, it, the Geiger counter can kind of amp up the excitement in that moment when it starts beeping a whole lot. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So trying to stay calm and figure things out has been really important and hard to learn about all of these decisions. And then also it's another thing about making all of these decisions under stress is that sometimes I've had I've had to learn how to be okay with all of the ways in which they're non-optimal and all of the ways that I might wish the situation were different, to be okay with the fact that I wish that, but to recognize that that's the reality in which I live and I have to figure out what to do going forward, if that makes sense as well. So, I mean, in retrospect, do you wish that you had fought for more time? So... You know, look, I know you want to help us and I know you want us to make a decision here, but can we spend a couple weeks? We're going to continue our experiments, but give us a couple weeks to think about this and make a decision before we have to commit. So I did, I guess that doesn't really come across in how I wrote about it. I did do a little bit of that. In some of these meetings, I was like, I can't make this decision until I've actually passed my qualifying exam. Like, you can't make me make this call and pass the exam, like, give me until after that point. So there was some of that going on. And yes, I'm glad that I did what of that that I did. And I wish I had been able to stand up for myself more. My other lab mates were maybe in a little bit different position. They were further along in their projects. And so it was, I don't want to speak for them, but it was, it might have been because it was a complicated decision for all of us, but they were in a little bit more of a position where deciding to go with Steve might have been more straightforward than it was for me, who was so early. I think this is interesting because we're getting into the question of graduate student agency and like how much is up to you to decide and how much is up to the program to decide. And actually, I feel like graduate programs... The graduate programs have been moving since our time, throwing them to the wolves a lot less. But this is a case where maybe, I don't know, maybe they there could have been a little bit more uh, flexibility or something. Yeah, I one of the things that bothers me in retrospect about the situation is how I felt like I didn't have agency. Because when I was making my original decision about whether or not to join Kintaro's lab, in thinking back, I didn't have a ton of options there either. There was, when I was a first year grad student in Davis, we rotate through four different labs. One of those labs had funding and was like, yeah, I'd love to take you. That was Kentaro's lab. And a couple of the other labs I'd rotated with didn't really have funding. So when I decided to join Kentaro's lab, it wasn't like I had four different options of ways to go. It was sort of a yes, no, do I go this way or do I try and do something more dramatic? But that was my choice at that time. And I took, it was a space in grad school when contemplating what your future was going to be about was totally normal. Like my entire cohort was spending those last couple of weeks right before we made decisions, agonizing over which lab, what funding, how is this all going to work? And then two years later, it was 
I was making another decision, but it was less my choice. And less in the structure yeah. of the program, right? Like we talk a lot about this in the previous two episodes with Scott about choosing a grad school and what should go into there and how do you choose a lab. But there is a structure in place. We know that students are making tough decisions at that point. People are sort of sensitized to that. And I'm sure people were sensitized to this being a tough decision, but there wasn't a lot of structure no. in place there, yeah. clearly. And none of us had gone through that. Yeah. Or, no, I mean. Yeah, none, none, not us, but like you're, none of the, none of the faculty who are running your graduate program had had this experience. And so they had no way to, no reserves yeah, to draw Everybody on. was finding their way through the forest without a map in the darkness in a thunderstorm. <laughs> in a thunderstorm, right. With the scintillation counter screaming at top volume. Exactly. If, if you were going to give advice to, say, for example, graduate program steering committee members, how they could set up structures in advance that would help students in any of these scenarios. So a faculty member moving, a faculty member getting fired, a faculty member passing away, in any of these scenarios. like As far as advice for grad programs. There's a lot of things in graduate students' life that don't have really well set up rules. There's just sort of some guidelines and you do your best to follow them. And for this, there are obviously no guidelines and that was difficult, but but why not? But why not? I mean- Like very skeletal structure of, okay, the first priority will be to make sure that we have a way to pay you since that's pretty important. And then the next thing on the list is we'll figure out what resources you need to maintain your project. What other people do you need to move labs entirely? Do we need to bring some other people in? Do we need to somehow f financially facilitate other people having time to advise you figuring that stuff out? And then maybe simultaneously giving students enough time to make their decisions in these moments of stress and to not put them under a lot of pressure and just be conscious of that. But also after the decision is made, not going, okay, the decision's been made, they'll figure it out and backing off. I see. Three months later, checking in, okay, is this logistically working? Are we, are the way we're paying our grad, these grad students going to work? Have we figured out everything about, have they settled into their lab? Six months later, okay, is everything still, is there anything that we could change at this point does anything become a problem? Because a lot of the adjustment period didn't happen in those first three months. Those first three months were about surviving. Right. And then a lot of the figuring out like how to change my project, how to work within Steve's group happened over the course of the first year. And, and Steve was obviously intimately involved in that process, but the grad group as a whole was not. So not just letting all of this stressful stuff happen and then backing away and letting the student figure it out, at least for me, would have been helpful. And the other thing I guess I would suggest would be to write as much of this stuff down in a formal paperwork way as is possible. Because it's useful to have a policy in place you can point someone to saying, all right, the, this this policy has kicked in. Here are the 10 things that are important to know. Exactly. And then less on the policy side, but more on the like, hey, this is what we've said we're going to do. This is how we're going to fund you. We are going to fund you until this date. And here's a piece of paper that says that. Yeah. I think I think I say a couple of times <laughs> in the piece that I wrote that you should push for that. And that was definitely me saying that because I don't have that. And it's 
at times been a source of stress because there is a written agreement somewhere in Steve's inbox about how I'm funded. But but you don't have the documentation. On one hand, I don't necessarily need it. But on the other hand, I would really like to have it because yeah. when you're when you lose your advisor, when your advisor is going away, you've lost your primary protector and advocate. So mm-hmm. making sure that students have a person or people who are stepping into that role, or if they don't have that person yet, trying to provide them as, with as much reassurance, even if that's a piece of paper that says, yes, we're still going to fund you, um, would be help is helpful and would be helpful. What do you think about also a paid leave of absence? Like having this idea that you, there would be available to you four weeks, six weeks, where you're not expected to produce anything and where you uh, are paid but are not, uh, where you're making yeah, decisions I mean, I think, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if that's even f- possible, <laughs> to be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not sure if it's possible. I think it would be a good idea to at least have it as an option. It's something s- sort of, because I was getting ready for my qualifying exam, I wasn't doing bench work right. when all of this happened. And I had already planned to take time off to go home after my qualifying exam, just because I had been getting ready for the darn thing for a month mm-hmm. and a half. So it's that sort of ended up happening functionally for me, but it was stuff, other stuff that I was doing when I could have, and I very much could have been working. I'm not exactly sure that's the best way to say that, but there wasn't really an option to step back, breathe, deal with making the decision, deal with all of the emotional grief aspect that was going on at the same time. And that's, Dealing with that stuff is probably where it would have been helpful to have that ability to take the official time off because I, instead of dealing with a lot of that emotional stuff, compartmentalized it all, took a qualifying exam, and then made this gigantic decision and jumped right back into trying to cope with all of the experiments. Um, the, so, the relaxing life of grad school. The extremely relaxing life of grad school. And so did that, like... Did it all hit you later? Did it just, do you feel like that's all just a ball waiting there for you to deal with it? Or what happened with all of that grief and trauma? It very, it definitely hit me later. Yeah. There are, there are people along sort of as all of this was happening and along the way who went above and beyond to help me and who saw at points at which I was struggling. One of those people was the grad studies counselor at Davis who had been alerted to the situation, contacted me, I'm sure contacted the other people in my lab saying, hey, I'm here if you want to talk. And I had taken her up on that. In some ways, I didn't have a lot of outlets to talk about this. And she bent the rules about how many times she could see me into a pretzel and continued talking to me for like the next year and a half because a lot of the most of the complicated emotions I had about Kintara dying and all of the ways that made me feel took about six months to really start hitting me. Right. So that joyous five cycle path or five step pathway that's not at all a pathway and instead just a mesh of Mm. feedback loops. You're talking about the five stages of grief. Five stages of grief. That one, yeah. yes. Yeah, that's yeah. not a that's not a linear pathway. It would be mm-hmm. great if it was a linear <laughs> pathway that you could move through in an efficient and relatively <laughs> uncomplicated way, but it just isn't. So 
that was something I had to deal with later and that has never has taken a long time to process. So it's uh, it's been about three years now. Have you do you still feel stuck or do you feel like you found a good trajectory now? I definitely feel more like I have a trajectory now. There are still things I worry about. Like I worry about how much I cut back my project in order to have a project that could be feasible with the professor who didn't originally conceive of the project. Like if that, well, yeah. let, 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 let us, let us reassure yeah. you that every grad student has to cut back their project. to <laughs> Yeah, no, I, this, <laughs> definitely yeah. a thing. So there's, so there's, there's a point at which the concerns I have about my original advisor died, sort of let start blending into normal imposter syndrome. I was sort of interested in this idea of this big disruption you had in your graduate career Actually, right at the time when I think graduate students start to wonder, mm, is this actually what I want to be doing? Like, but then they just keep doing it because they're here and it's like this uh, inertia. They don't really, they're not really making a choice to continue. But you actually were forced to make the choice to continue, like this big decision. And I guess I wondered if that felt empowering. It definitely made me a little bit less inclined towards the mid PhD inertia because I did basically have to recommit. And I don't think it registered as, as empowering in the moment, you know, September, 2016. And that's not necessarily been a static decision that I've never had to revisit. Like things will sort of get off the rails along the way and I will end up sort of rethinking, okay, do I really want to keep going? Is this what I was, this is always going to be kind of complicated to explain. And there is when it's been more re-empowering to go, yeah, you know, it was a terrible situation I was put into that wasn't my fault and that I had very few choices, but I have gotten to this point and survived all of this. I know I will most likely be able to get to the next point. So I'm just going to continue hanging on and pushing forward. As, as someone who has two different institutions and two different advisors uh, on my CV for the grad school period, it, you'd be surprised people don't ask about it <laughs> that much. Um, and I mean, I think uh, actually, you know, you, you know, you could just, it could be very clear, like you got your PhD with Steve Thag and the, the downside of that is it, it feels you know, maybe a little bit like yeah. a, a betrayal of Kentaro and that, that, that people don't, they're just, people will skip over it and you will feel, no, you can't skip over that. That would, that's, that, that makes yeah, him exactly. disappear. That's and I don't want already that. been something I've struggled with is like those two years were really valuable. I learned how to be a scientist from Kentaro and Steve mm -hmm. has taken that and yep. polished all the edges off or is working on polishing all the edges off. There's still a lot of edges. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, not, not a fully finished product here yet. Uh, still very much a rough draft, but they're both very important to my development as a scientist. So it's hard. Yeah. And I guess another thing that we should, I should mention is I've mentioned the sort of, I needed to me myself decide that whatever was in my way, I was going to get through this. But that, like, there have been points along the way where figuring out how to keep going has been figuring out, like, okay, you need help. You need help from the counselor. You need help from, you need more experimental advice from another professor. You need the 
you need to talk to the other students in your program, you need to talk to your lab mates who are going through the same thing you are. This was not something that you, this is not something you get through on your own, if that makes sense. Well, Laura, I, I really appreciate you coming on the Taproot and sharing this story with us. I think it is super helpful for people to hear about how to, to make decisions in this sort of stressful environment. Um, if uh, if people want to email you, uh, should they? Uh... Yeah, people can. Yeah, you can check find me through the plant biology graduate group student list. My email's up there, and want to thank you both for the opportunity to talk about all okay. of this. I hope this helps someone who's struggling something with a decision in grad school somewhere. I am a hundred percent sure it will help many people. And Liz, how can they get in touch with you if they want to? comment on the program oh you should uh find me on twitter at at e haswell and you can find me at baxter twee that's twi or you can find the podcast on twitter at at taproot podcast and with that we will sign off and talk to you next week thanks again laura thank you is a production of the American Society of Plant Biologists. Mary Williams is our producer. Editing is done by Katie Rogers, Ivan Baxter, and Liz Haswell. Katie Rogers also helps us with the writing of the blog posts and other social media. Joe Stormer does all of our transcripts. Thank you for listening, and we'll have another episode for you next week.